in the not too distant future. Following the rapid succession of World Wars 3 and 4, plus the hidden horrors of secret World War 2, there's not much left. All that remains is a place where folks get together to read and discuss comic books. Sometimes they laugh, sometimes they argue, but they always record and upload their transmissions. You've found one of those transmissions today. Welcome to the last comic shop. Listen, Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time. I wish I could unstick you in time. But our listeners don't. It's the last comic shop. And welcome back to another week of our fantastic podcast. I'm the host with the most, Andy Larson. If you haven't guessed, we're going to be reading one of a true literary classics this week that happened to be adapted into comic book form. So it is still a comic book podcast. Like, don't get us wrong. We're not like shifting over to novels permanently. But this is a great example of the kind of breadth and depth of the comic book medium in which you can take whole books and say, I'm going to make another book out of them. That's right. And, and we had to read a book without pictures in it. Well, mostly right. without pictures. There's that one in there, you know, with the necklace. And that is my co-host, Chad Smith. So, Chad, have you read a lot of books like this in regards to, like, comic book adaptations of actual novels? Uh, not really. And for the record, we haven't mentioned yet, we're going to be going over Slaughterhouse-Five uh, from Kurt Vonnegut in a couple of different forms. But, uh, but no, I mean, back in when I was a kid, we had those classics illustrated. Yes. Uh, that, you know, was the go-to. Sometimes in classrooms and stuff, you'd be able to pick those up. But I haven't read a lot of, like, actual literature adapted into comic books. I, I, I don't know. J.A., don't you have some experience with some Philip Dick stuff? Yeah, my other co-host, J.A. Scott, I think he recommended a Philip K. Dick book that was adapted, Android's Dream of Electric Ship, on uh, an episode a couple weeks ago. Yes, uh, have I you did. read any other ones other than that one? Uh, besides Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, I have the 9-11 Commission Report in graphic novel format. No way! <laughs> really? That will help yes. you to never forget. Yes. <laughs> Who in their right mind did that? <laughs> that would be it's a book a, that I would never read. It's actually <laughs> quite well done in that the whole first section of the book is tracking the attacks but because it's graphic form you can see them happening together and you've got these timelines and i think we'll get into sort of what the graphic novel medium brings to things like that or like slaughterhouse five where you can show stuff graphically that uh would take pages and pages to write about and i think uh in slaughterhouse five not to jump ahead <laughs> you're able to show that in a single page well, one person that uh, is also our, one of our biggest book readers on this particular program is my wonderful wife, Nicole Larson. Now, Nicole, I know for a fact that you have read some comic book adaptations of novels. In fact, I think you were going to recommend one later on in the show. Don't want to tease it too much, but uh, which one was that? Wait, so am I supposed <laughs> to say it or not? You go ahead. It's all right. I mean, you're not going to go into a lot of detail. So actually, I think I've only done one it's graphic novel adaptation of Anne Frank's diary. Ah, so yes, you'll hear a little bit more about that when we get to the end of the show and we get to recommendations. That's a tease, but this is that's not a tease. That's a tell. Mm. That's a tell. 
You just like you just told them. <laughs> it gave did. it away. Uh, yeah, we did. So I was confused stuff. if so, I should say it or not because that was my one thing for the contribution in, at the end of the show. In the true spirit of Slaughterhouse Five, if you'd like to fast forward <laughs> and listen to that review now, you can do that. Just unstick yourself and then come back, and and then and then it'll all make sense. But. Uh, I did want to comment on the fact, because I think a couple of weeks ago when we had my wife on the show, we started talking about comic books versus novels, and, and we had a really intellectual discourse about that. And I, I, I did want to kind of posit this question to the group, which is, we're all very familiar with uh, movie adaptations and how sometimes those are the picks. <laughs> they oftentimes are not so much what the, uh, the, the book represents or whatever, and it was very interesting this week, uh, not to give too much away, but I thought that uh, Slaughterhouse-Five's comic book adaptation was pretty much the novel, having read both. What, what are your thoughts on the difference between these movie adaptations and these comic book adaptations? Is it easier to do a book adaptation with a comic book? I would say yes, because the mediums are closer. It's still written form. Yes, you get images and uh, there's more dialogue probably in a graphic novel but you're still working with the written word as opposed to television or a movie where it's a completely different format just an example the graphic novel version of slaughterhouse five works much better than the film version of slaughterhouse five from the 1970s i have never seen i i did not hear good things <laughs> chad your thoughts uh, well, so I'm I'm a big proponent where I feel like each medium has their own strengths and weaknesses. You know, there are some things that work great in movies, and some things that work better in uh, you know in comics, or some things that would work better as novels. And so it's really a fine dance whenever you find something that's already been defined really well in one medium, and you translate it to another. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I mean by that, if you're experiencing a movie based on a book or a show based on a book, like uh, the Queen's Gambit. I watched The Queen's Gambit and I loved it, but I didn't have the background of the book. And I'm sure I had a different experience than the people that had read the book and then watched the show. I only watched half an episode of a show and then I fell asleep and then I started the book and I loved the book so much. I just said, well, screw it. I'm just going to stick with that. There you go. But each medium has their own things that, uh, that they do well. And I think it's really hard to be successful across multiple things. It can happen. But it's really hard to celebrate what works in one form uh, in another form. The opposite example of this, and I, I love ragging on Zack Snyder. Everybody talks about the Zack Snyder Watchmen film. It's yes. this great comic book movie because he was able to pull like panels from the books and put them up there on, on the movie screen. And I'm like, yeah, that, that was neat as like an experiment. But does it make for a good movie? No. Critically, like. It's not a well-done movie as far as movies go. You have to figure out what's going to work for the method that you're using. And so the answer is, is ultimately, it depends. It can be done. There have been times like Forrest Gump, the book is totally different than the movie, but they're both awesome simultaneously. Or you have something like The Watchmen, where the book is or the movie's trying too hard to be like uh, the comic. And it's like, oh, this is, this is not what I'm here for. And I think yeah, I also, think dependent on the story, the movie can transcend the book. Often we'll say, oh, you know, the book is better. The book is better. I don't think that's necessarily always true. Thinking of 2001, A Space Odyssey. Good book, epic movie. Same thing with The Godfather. The Godfather's a meh book, but the movie, great. 
No, I think that when it comes to, you know, we, we go back to Scott McCloud and understanding comic books, which I guarantee we're going to do on this show sometimes. So if you're a long-time fan, keep listening because we'll probably do this book. But ultimately, you know, when you have like kind of like a, I don't want to say like a timeline, but like a lit, you know, you, you've got novels on one end, you've got movies on the other, and you got comic books kind of in the middle. I feel like the reason why novels and comic books work better as an adaptation, because it's almost like it's only a half step. You know, you're starting to say, okay, we're going to give you some pictures, but you still have to fill in the gaps, as opposed to a movie, which is kind of like a whole step. It's like the other ep- end of the spectrum from like not seeing anything to seeing everything. Uh, that, that's just my thought. I think it's it's very perilous. There are landmines everywhere because we get a, a novel and there's an illustrator that you're like, that isn't what that looks like. This is terrible. Just, it's immediately dismissed. And so you've got to really thread the needle. Right. Well, one thing that you never see on our show is any of us because it's a podcast and that's by design. But what you'll get more of our podcast, Last Comic Shop, right after these messages when we review the comic book adaptation of Slaughterhouse Five. Stay tuned for that. It was the three-legged dog of comics. It was bad. These two gentlemen met in jail, and then when they got out, they started publishing. It should have been mobsters instead of doing what they do in comics. Management there was questionable at times. Some of it has to do with people who go to jail. We are sinners. We have corrupted the youth. Stuff that should never have been sold to kids. And then there was Charlton. I couldn't quite tell what they were doing. Charlton was just a hodgepodge of weird titles. What is this? Who am I dealing with? John threw nickels around like they were manhole covers. C-A-T. T-A-P. They were cheap. Hell yes, they're cheap. They were a special kind of special is what they were. Pretty was horrible. You could smell them beginning to decay even as they were rolling off the press. At one point, they actually did have to move the comics operation into a bowling alley. It's something out of a sitcom. We want to publish comic books in the worst way, and they did. It's been called the street fighting cousin of Marvel and DC. Maybe you've heard of them. Probably not. But you do know the industry legends that called it home. This is Charlton Comics. Follow at charltonmovie.com. Oh, it's going to suck. All right, we are back with more of The Last Comic Shop. And on this week's show, you are going to get, again, a little bit of a double dose of literary magic when we basically uh-huh. not only talk about Slaughterhouse-Five, the novel, but also Slaughterhouse-Five, the comic book adaptation. So for those folks that wanted more from your podcast, we're giving it to you this week. And uh, real quickly, Chad, about the comic book adaptation, given we are still a comic book show, who did the comic book adaptation of this very famous sci-fi masterpiece? Okay, so this was released as a graphic novel, uh, I want to say in 2020, uh, through Archaea. Archaea. I have a hard time saying that one. It's Boom Studios. You can find it through them as well. But it is the stories by Kurt Vonnegut. And the adaptation is written by Ryan North of Squirrel Girl fame and illustrated by Albert Montes. Very cool. Now, I know that you're a huge fan of Ryan North's work, given that you love the Squirrel Girl over the years. Have you ever experienced this particular artist before? I have not. Um... I believe he doesn't work on either Playboy or Penthouse. <laughs> Say that out loud again, real quick for our fans. Oh, Dad has become me... unstuck on himself. No, that's, that's the worst. Okay. <laughs> Let's get back into the show. I'm ready. All right, go on. So the artist, Albert Montes, uh, is a Spanish comic writer and illustrator. He worked in a, a satirical weekly magazine called El Jueves, 
And in America, he had done some work for Penthouse Comics uh, with an X there. So I I wasn't super familiar with the guy, but uh, I had enough faith in in Ryan North. Uh, I I love his style. And I thought just the way that he thinks, it seemed like that would be a great fit for Kurt Vonnegut. Yes. Well, I, I can say that uh, I uh, you you did get a kind of a bonus when you got your your hardback version of this particular book, didn't you? Get a nice little book plate from one of your favorite artists and one of Ryan Worth's running buddies. Yeah, and so speaking of Squirrel Girl, there's an awesome Kurt Vonnegut picture drawn by Erica Henderson, and it's just beautiful. And it was autographed by Ryan North. Uh, Whenever I got my copy right before this was released to the the general public, well, but uh, I was so excited. Wait, so the person who drew the sticker didn't sign it? No. That's confusing. The guy that wrote the book You're signed sure the sticker. Not like, not like a mini signature on there somewhere? I mean, you can see. Hold on, wait, where is it? Uh, by the shirt collar, the E-H. Okay, so she technically yeah, so yeah. she did sign. But she like but that's part of the drawing. Yeah. That's the sticker. That was the pre-printed not, part, not the part done in Sharpie. That's not a sign sign. That's yeah. just a sign. So the... So if our podcast was illustrated, who would be our who would illustrate us? I think Rob Liefeld would get Chad. Ah, that'd be great. That would be nice. He'd have enormous pecs. I think he'd do well with my hair. Yeah, and because you're sitting, you don't have to worry about your feet. That's true. It's waist up, baby. That's all well, action. I was gonna go with somebody for JA. I think I'd I'd love to see JA with some Kirby crackle behind him, just popping all over the place on coming in on his surfboard. That would be nice. I don't know who would. Well, I would go with Caitlin Smith. One, because I've met her. Yeah. <laughs> two, she's good at drawing like square noses. And two, she she draws girls with a little rumpy rump, you know, which I mean, I've got plenty of drunken trunk. You're not afraid to show it, but not be like, oh, here's the boob. It's <laughs> <laughs> just looking at me like I'm strange. I just want Sal Bushima to draw me, not getting head over heels haymaker with the spittle coming oh, out of my mouth. <laughs> Anyways, let's get back into the show and to J.A. Scott, who's going to provide us with the 10 cent synopsis for Slaughterhouse-Five. Slaughterhouse-Five, <laughs> also known as the Children's so, Crusade, a duty dancer with death. A duty dance with death. Death. Blech. That's just struggling. <laughs> it's basically a non-linear storytelling of one man's life and how he dealt with the firebombing of Dresden. Right. No, that's that's about as ten cents as you can get. I mean, there's a lot here, and uh, I know that this week when we were reading the book, my wife looked over at me and said, "When is this going to get good?" No, I mean, when when is this going to start to make a point? Like, what's the point? What I said, <laughs> and I and I can see how non non linear storytelling sometimes can do that. I, I mean, it is one of the stories. I I kind of looked at her and I said, "This is basically a PTSD story." really before there was PTSD stories. This is Kurt Vonnegut, who lived through the firebombing of Dresden and wanted to write a book about his experience, but somehow couldn't get there. I mean, it's probably a very traumatic experience for him. So he wrote himself as kind of like a background character in this story about this uh, optometrist named Billy Pilgrim, who gets Kidnapped by the Tralfamagorians? Am I saying Oh, that right? I was waiting for that part. I wanted to hear Andy say that word. <laughs> and uh, these, and so he gets kidnapped by them, taken to some alien planet where they teach him about that time is not linear, that you can everything kind of moves at the same point. And uh, yeah, he starts just reliving his life from 
again, when he's a baby to when his dad hucks him in the deep end at the YMCA and says, sink or swim. And then later on, when he has to survive, not only the uh, Dresden, but living in a POW camp with really bad shoes until he gets these silvery ones. So that's just adding some, a little bit more to your 10 cents. That's more like 50 cents. But uh, if you haven't noticed, I really like this a lot. And uh, But I'm not the only person on this show. And I do want to start off with my wife, who said, I wasn't sure about this book. So what are your initial thoughts, Nicole, of Slaughterhouse-Five? Either the book or the comic book. Uh, so I never read either one of them, obviously. And I have to say that I read the book first, and then I read the comic book shortly thereafter, like the next day. And I feel like I read them too close together to really make a good comparison. So I feel like because I had just come off reading the book, the comic just read really easy. And it kind of was just like a playback of the book to me rather than standing on its own. So I feel like I didn't really give it do course or credit, you know, in terms of evaluating it on its own. That being said, you know, for a non-linear story, what I did like about it, at least he told you when you were jumping, because then he said, oh, and then I woke up in this and this time. Because sometimes when you read books and they don't tell you that they're jumping time, it's very confusing, obviously. Yeah. But again, it's just a storytelling. So I'm going to go back to Chad's point when we talked about Essex County. And he's like, what's the point? And I would say to Chad, what's the point of this? And the point is that it's just a story about a guy's life. Chad, now this was your pick for this week. It is. So a couple of things. First and foremost, I love Kurt Vonnegut. I discovered Kurt Vonnegut in my 20s, probably my favorite author. And Slaughterhouse-Five is the book that he is best known for. And I, I want to go on record saying this is not my favorite Kurt Vonnegut book by a long shot. Um, as a matter of fact, the most joy I had in this book was finding other characters from other books appear in it. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, there's Elliot Rosewater. There's Kilgore Trout. And like, those are the moments that, uh, that I, I enjoyed. But I feel like this book was so much about Kurt Vonnegut dealing with his PTSD and dealing with the stuff that he couldn't control in life. And so you have this whole fatalism about, you know, you know that, that poem, you know, God, give me the, God the things me the that I can... God grant to accept the things I cannot change. There you go. Right. And so with this like whole, that. the, the Tremalfian uh, concept of, you know, time being a nonlinear thing, it's basically Billy Pilgrim. It's not his choice. He's dragged along. It's been predetermined. He's going to go to that pool and he's going to sink to the bottom. And if it was up to Billy Pilgrim, he would stay at the bottom of the pool. But other forces are going to act upon him. Other forces are going to dive in and pull him out of there. If he was in the war, he wasn't going to survive the war, except he had people like Roland Weary pushing him forward. You know, the scouts leading the way until they left. And so many forces acting upon this guy. And, you know, he ends up becoming an optometrist, not because he loved optometry, but you know, he married this this lady whose father was an optometrist. And he's like, yeah, be Billy in your in your service. People will like that. And like, but he's just this guy who's strung along in life by his experiences, and he's so messed up, and he never really recovers, and he never gets his feet under him. But you know, but he just eventually accepts all this stuff that is happening to him. And you know, it's tragic to read it. And as far as the book adaptation versus the novelization, I actually think. The, the graphic novel was a nice supplement. You know, if you don't want to sit down and read through Slaughterhouse-Five, uh, you can sit down and read the graphic novel and, be, you know, go through the story in one sitting. And it's nice to remind you of all the important moments that you have. It was nice, too, I thought, um, giving somebody else's 
take on what the the trial Malfadorians look like or what Billy Pilgrim looked like. Like it's nice to have that a little bit more solidified to see somebody else's version of it. It's almost like reading the Cliff Notes version. It made some of the things a little bit more clear. I was like, okay, yeah, no, I get that now. I don't know. I feel like there's a story here. You know, I feel like there's a certain amount of acceptance that Kurt Vonnegut is is trying to achieve through this tale. That was, you know, it was the book he always said he was gonna write. And he always promised his publishers, yeah, I'll give you that one. I'll give you that one. And he would turn in other stuff. But this was the most difficult one because this is him working through the stuff that he couldn't control. Yeah. And I think it brings up talking about the book in general, you know, regardless of if it's uh, the graphic novel or the actual novel, the whole idea of free will and Mm -hmm. what is free will and do we have free will or are we just defined by these experiences that uh, push us along and, and make us who we are is it are we making those decisions or are those decisions being made for us i think is is quite good what i liked about the graphic novel and i said it at the top of the show is that the medium allows you to quickly digest sort of big concepts that whole idea of how the trial famadorians look at time and in the graphic novel it's just a page and you see billy and all his different uh, parts of his life all drawn out like a mountain. It goes up and down and it's, it's literally like a mountain. He starts out as a baby. He ends as an old man and dead corpse. And you see all the little moments that we're going to see throughout the graphic novel and throughout the novel, all drawn on one single panel. And I thought that was a very nice um, graphical representation of the idea. And that's something yeah, can- you can't do in other, in another medium. I'll add too that there was another good moment like that where I think it's uh, when he gets first abducted, he asks for a book, and I guess the aliens give him one of their books. And in, in the in the novel, they're talking about like it's a book that like it's all about uh, not so much a plot, but just like a bunch of concepts just jumbled together. And in the, in the comic book, you get this page of just all these little tiny panels that don't really make a lot of sense, but you look at them and they're just like. Yeah, that is actually pleasant to look at. You see, that's one thing, though, I didn't think translated well. When they described that in the book, I don't know, there was something ethereal about it to me when that they were saying how they look at it and it just encapsulates an experience or a feeling or an emotion to them when they look at this book. And when, when they drew it, I was just like, oh, that just looks like a bunch of shapes and stuff. It didn't translate well for, for me personally. That always reminds me of the Parks and Rec episode where Aziz Ansari's character pays somebody to make a painting for him. That's abstract. And he's like, what the heck is this? And then, you know, an hour later, he's like, look at these shapes. I love the shapes. And he's just overtaken by emotion. But I I wanted to point out, too, on that level, there are two double-page spreads in here. There's the first double-page spread where he gets to Dresden and the slaughterhouse. And you see that double-page of this vibrant city that had been totally unaffected by the war for the most part. And then fast forward a couple pages later after the bombing, there's another double-page spread. And it's just this is different yeah and it just the visuals really hit home like you, right. you hear about the experience but it's just hard to to fathom we're not used to those levels of destruction right in, the, so, in the book they uh, they talk about it being like the surface of the moon and I, I really do think when you see the comic book adaptation no that's what it looks like like they they went out of their way to show more than just a bombed out crater just that's like a barren wasteland and, uh, and all the colors gone. It's all grays and smoke and and yeah, and you know, almost washed out color with just that little word bug. And so it goes, which is always used when somebody dies as the Grim Reaper. 
So it goes. I almost wish there was like an inlay with, you know, a hundred thousand. So it goes is like a little plastic sheet that you could fold over and be like, just to see the scale of the death there and then fold it back and see the picture. And and that's another thing about this particular uh, comic book adaptation that I really, really liked was the fact that it's just interesting in the way that they take some of Kurt Vonnegut's words and they visually represent them. Like there's the part of there where they show uh, Roland, uh, who's this other soldier in the war with him. And in the, co- in the novel, like Kurt Vonnegut talks about how much equipment that Roland's carrying around with him throughout the war. And in the comic book, you get this page that's almost like one of those cutout dolls where they've got all the pieces of equipment all around this, this kind of rotund guy that's like in the middle. And it, it, it was just... It was just really interesting for me to see, again, when you strip down all the stuff that's, that this, this one soldier was carrying, and it's just all over this page. It is quite a lot. Like, he was definitely weighed down. But between that scene, uh, the scene when they get to the, tr- the train yard uh, after they capture all the prisoners of war, and there's this, this beautiful, I think it's a full-page spread of them walking down the train yard. You just see all the displaced uh, POWs. Uh, that and like the scenes in the actual train car itself, because when you read the book, you're trying to figure out how Billy Pilgrim's sleeping. And then in the comic book, we actually see like he's always leaning up against this post. Oh, that makes sense to me. And maybe it's because I'm a visual guy, but I just love the comic book adaptation so much even more than the book because it just kind of showed me just enough to, for me to kind of visualize what the book was talking about. I liked how they did um, when he Billy wakes up and he can't sleep, so he's waiting for the saucer to come. So he goes downstairs and he watches TV, and there's a movie on about the Second World War, but it's in being played in reverse. Yeah, that's another one of those moments that works better, I think, in the comic book adaptation because I think those the images, especially that that one line about the women taking apart the bombs and then giving the uh, minerals back to the people that dig it in and stick it back in the ground so it could never be used to make war again. I think that was probably one of the most therapeutic lines that, that Kirk Vonnegut wrote in this particular book, because I feel like it summed up his notions of what war is and how war should not really exist. And I think in the comic book version, you get a really neat visualization of that. I will say, for the, to stick up for the novel, when they go to war and they meet up with the English, I'm glad I had read the novel because... In the comic, they just seem kind of like dicks. And you don't really understand, you know, like, what is the difference between these American soldiers and these English guys? Like, where they had, through some uh, office mix-up, been given so many extra supplies. So these, this is the one group of people that's been well taken care of throughout the course of the war. And, you know, so the POW show up at this camp, and the English guys are like, they're here! Come on, guys, we're going to put on a play! You know, <laughs> how are you doing, Yanks? And then... They feed them and all this food. These guys, the, the Americans are not used to it at all. And that's my favorite scene in the novel is Kurt Vonnegut when he talks about how the food went right through him. And he's like, hey, everything's coming out of me except for my brains. He's like, there they go. There go my <laughs> brains. The novel, I think, handled that so much better. But at the same time, it, like, there were so many points where the graphic novel, I think, helped clarify and spell things out for me and just give me more of a context that I appreciated having it for sure. Yeah, I don't know how you didn't think that the the Brits in that book were dicks until you got to the comic book because they were complete dicks. 
Like the entire time, they're like, don't use our shitter anymore. Like that's what they were saying. Like, don't use our latrine. No, no, no. Like, because they, they barely saw the war. They got like, it was like the Great Escape. Like, those were all the folks from the Great Escape, but, you know, like, it was the Steve McQueen character. It was like people that sat out the war mostly, just doing push ups and sit ups and, and getting all cozy with the commandant. Yeah. Now, Making sure they brushed their teeth twice a day and stayed fit and, you know, kept their spirits up with a good song and like, but I, I just loved the the way they described the Americans and like, they're not good chaps, but it just, it describes so much about the American way and the things that we believe like, yeah, that's kind of right. Like we do kind of hate ourselves. I could see at this grand global scale, like how those issues could be blown up and, you know, right. But there's no, there's no American that's better than Edgar Derby. Poor old Edgar Derby. Aww. When I, when I was reading this book and then somebody later on told me that that's like the emotional climax of the book when they actually tell you how Edgar Derby dies, which I'm not going to in case you want to actually read the book, but there's like this whole buildup of how Edgar Derby dies. He's one of the few POWs that's captured at the same time of Billy Pilgrim. That's actually like a, a genuine, what you think of as like a, a an American soldier, like a, He's takes like a war care hero. of himself. He takes care of other folks. Like he's a real, you know, GI Joe. You know what I mean? And well, he's a man, not a boy. Yeah, he's like forty-two. But anyways, I was gonna say I have a quote that I wanted to talk about. Okay. okay. I, just don't know how to, I don't know how to mix it in here. So this is uh, Billy talking about his mom and how she would piano player for churches and she never quite joined one because she was searching for the right one but she liked crucifixes and he had this kind of horrifying crucifix over his bed or in his room when he was a child and uh, I thought this was uh, speaking of American life like Chad was saying um, quote is like so many Americans she was trying to construct a life that made sense from things she found in gift shops and I thought that was so true like i just feel like there's so much like superficial bullshit <laughs> that america yeah. put put so much gravity into right instead of the real stuff it's just all this like somebody yeah, else vonnegut knows how to cut to the core yeah that's how so many yeah. of us process things I, I wanted to talk about paul lazaro yeah the car the car carjacker from cicero yeah what do you think about that guy first and foremost he shows up and there's that british guy that comes in and he's like, you know, I'm going to have you killed. And the British guy just looks at him and he's like, you know, I, there's still time for me to kill you. I just love that. But then to know, to be Billy Pilgrim and to know that this is the jerk that's going to be responsible for your death. But then it's not going to come for another couple of decades. But to, to know that as you're sitting right there and this guy's going over all these evil plans, like, ah, I'm going to shoot him in the pecker and make him think about what life is like without a pecker. And then I'm going to shoot him in the guts. <laughs> and he's just such a cruel, ugly, hideous man. But Billy, you know, he has transcended all that stuff. He knows, like, what's going to happen has always happened. It always will happen. There's nothing you can do to change that. And so he's embracing uh, the moments that he can. Whew, yeah, that was that um, actually when I was I was thinking of the, the, the book versus the comic book adaptation. I actually thought that they were going to draw... Uh, that character a lot more uglier than what they, they actually, you know, that was the other thing about the, the way that they drew actually Billy Pilgrim. You know, when, when you talk about him in the book, especially when he's like really downtrodden, hiking through the, the German countryside and eventually getting captured and becoming a POW, you really think of this Billy Pilgrim as some sort of emaciated, 
freakish looking dude. And, and in the comic book, he doesn't look like that at all. He looks just like a perfectly normal dude. Uh, you know, even when they give him the little coat, like I was just like, I thought that the coat was going to be a lot smaller and they actually made it like a true vest in this, in the, in the comic book, which I was just like, Oh, that, okay. I, I could, I could have wear that. I could have wore that vest. That's yeah. fine. That's fine. <laughs> That's actually quite fashionable. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you though, but it actually helped me with the, in the book where they plumped him up slightly and made him a little bit more of a respectable looking human. I actually had more respect for him than I did just reading the novel. Exactly. Well, later on, when they said there was a scene where they basically said that Billy Pilgrim had a tremendous wang, I was like, yeah, <laughs> well, that makes sense in this book, in the comic book. Yeah, he, he looks like an all right guy. Of course, he's going to be eventually shacking up with a porn star. It's fine. This is where you're Good for you, Billy. Good for you with your, with your second marriage there and your, and your midlife crisis. And that's really, that's the other thing. This is not like the traditional midlife crisis kind of, you know, life where basically he gets <laughs> right after his daughter gets married and he gets kidnapped and gets to live a couple of years banging some hot blonde on some alien planet and being completely Monica Wildhack. I was going to say, he was oddly at peace with all of that scenario. Right. Being a human zoo, walking around naked, a porn star, <laughs> sleeping with yeah, a porn well, star. Yeah, they explained it to him. He couldn't mama. control yeah. it. She also seemed to be okay with it. I like that panel when she's like breastfeeding and she goes, oh, were you time traveling again? Where did you go this time? I can always tell. And I know it wasn't the war. He's like, oh, I was in New York in 1968. Oh, did you see any good movies? Yeah, we uh, saw that blue one with the banana. <laughs> the blue one it was an that was an old that's an old time term for a Reese picture a blue picture would it be blue yeah blue balls j.a why was it blue (laughs) you're a film buff teach everybody why it was called a blue film okay they were called blue films because they were shot cheaply on low-grade film stock which would often give them a blue tint oh there you go so that absolutely nothing to do with any sort of Smurfs or <laughs> anyways, Why are you talking about Smurfs? anyways, but yeah, no, that, that I agree. That scene uh, with the, uh, with uh, Montana at the end where she's just basically very nonchalantly just nursing their new child and, and basically saying, Oh yeah. It, it, it's like that moment where like Billy Pilgrim, you know, throughout this entire book that he was talking about the happy moments in his life. And I feel like that was probably the happiest Billy Pilgrim ever was. Uh, you know, uh, with his first wife, uh, Valencia, she kind of like was asking him all his questions and whatever. And, and when he was on, you know, the alien planet with Montana, she was just kind of like, oh, you're traveling through time. Oh, that's good. Oh, you read more Kilgore Trout. Oh, that's great. And that was like my wife when I'm reading more comics. She's like, oh, that's, that's well, great. You know, yeah, she had that look. Us, he told us what his happiest moment was, though. Oh, on yes. The, back of the green truck. Yeah bathing in the sunlight coming back to before he found out about the horses yeah so can we presume that montana did not travel i mean so he's the only one unstuck in space in time i don't they're both stuck in space yes i i I don't think she had the same problem because he was so messed up that's what unstuck him yeah to her he was always there her time moved linear, linearly. Ooh, that's not an easy word to say. <laughs> well, but at some point he must have left and come back because, like, for real, linearly. No. <laughs> well, because he no, died. No, well, he's the there, he's there. Yeah, yeah he's there yeah. the whole time to her. For him, yeah. he's not there, but to her, he's there. Right. They never explained how he ever got back. 
Like, did we ever That's figure that out? Like, they never point. figured out why they, he got back. Like, he, he, it wasn't like he jumped there. Like, the aliens would have had to bring him back at some point, and then they would have to be on the on the plane crash, right? Like, the, the plane crash came after he came back from the planet. Maybe? I'm, I don't know. I'm fuzzy on that part. I, I, I remember his time worked differently for the, for the aliens, and so it seemed as though he was only gone for a little bit when it was actually a considerable amount of Earth time. Yeah. So that's a whole different wavelength going on. Right. I didn't think too much about it. Well, I will say I didn't like his busy body of a daughter. <laughs> she comes in and like, you, you read this book about Billy Pilgrim's life and you're like, you know what? He's actually led a pretty hard life. She should cut him some slack. Does she realize like what he's been through? He was in a, oh. he was in a plane crash. His, his wife died and he was in the war and she's like, oh, you haven't fixed the furnace. Shut up. Oh God! But that line, though—the the first time we meet her, or she was taking his dignity away in the name of love. Yes. And you think about our elderly and how often that happens. She was trying to show her love by taking her dig or taking his dignity away. He called her a bitchy liberty gibbet because it was talking about how Barbara had to take, you know, essentially take care of him and take care of his affairs, and all of this responsibility at such an early age made her a bitchy flip. I can't even say it. liberty gibbet. Liberty gibbet. That's that the you love that, and uh, I think I'm a bitchy liberty. <laughs> you are not. <laughs> Actually, that yeah. was another one that the comic book did a good job of, didn't they? Oh, did I see that somewhere else? No, never mind. That was something I saw on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it was, it, was, it, was a, it was a it was a graphic of like someone dying in a hospital, and it was like an overhead view, and so you saw the tubes and wires and foley bags and all that stuff versus dying at home and having music playing and holding their family's hand rather than having wires and stuff. So I sorry. That was on Facebook. Your Facebook is different than mine. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, we'll be right back with more of the last comic shop right after these messages. Uh, we're going to be doing a grade rating of Slaughterhouse five, the comic book. And I guess maybe the book too. I don't know, but hopefully we'll get unstuck right after these messages. He's the critic. He's the comic. And that's the gimmick. It's the Dare Daniel Podcast, where film critic Daniel Barnes and comedian Cork McDonald do your dirty work by watching the worst movies imaginable. Know of a movie so bad you have to share it? A film with a bad rap you've always been curious about? An underrated bit of cinema you'd love to hear discussed? Or are you a great big fat person? Whatever the case, we happily accept your most sadistic or altruistic dares. Every Tuesday, we release a full-length episode of Cinematic Stunt Work. And every Thursday, an action-packed mini-episode featuring previews, general movie discussion, and your movie dares, plus beer. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, our website, daredanier.com, and anywhere fine podcasts are burnished and proffered. And make sure to check out our sister pod, Serious Talk Seriously and Graphic Novel Explorers Club, for more quality Sacramento podcasts. All right, we're back with more of The Last Comic Shop, and it is now time for our ratings this week, where we assign worth to a particular comic book because that's what our fans demand. They have come to <laughs> us with pitchforks and torches and said, you will assess some worth to this book, sir, or else we will... Not listen to your podcast anymore. Serious, swear to God. And uh, easiest to do that is to say one out of four scale, as always, J.A. Scott, one being the lowest, four being the highest. What are we going to be grading this particular book on this week? 
One out of four Tralfamadorians. That's an eight sound effect, too. Uh, yes, but uh, I think you just wanted us to all have to say that word, right? Especially oh, me. Fam, uh... Tralfamadorians. Tralfamadorians. They got a tram stamp. Anyways, uh, my wife, she's going to go first on this particular, because again, I feel like she might be the most critical. I don't know. She said she didn't get it. So that was like the first third of the book that I said that. All right. Well, what, what is your grading in terms of how do you say it, darling? Come on. (laughs) The aliens. No, 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 no. (laughs) We're rating this, uh, See, again, I feel like I can't judge the comic book that well because I was so close to reading the novel version. Uh, I'll give it 3.1. So that's like a Tralfamadorian with one finger up. That's right. Just the one hand. That's right. It's weird that we're sending it in the decimal now. Well, I just made that Trout, <laughs> trout, Right there, you go. I'm not even looking at it. I wish I had it in front of me. I would be able to pronounce it better. Anyways, why did you rate it three instead of like a four or a two? I don't know because I have trouble giving bad grades. Mm. I, I don't know that I find it bad. I think sometimes I just read and and just kind of don't get to absorb as deeply as I think I could. And you guys have really made me think with some of your comments. So I'm not sure what I think yet. Is it because it's science fiction? Or did you even feel this was science fiction? I didn't really feel like it was science fiction. I mean, it was. I clearly understand what science fiction elements were a part of it. But we've said it. It it was more just a story about PTSD and war. And that I didn't really feel it was a sci-fi book. Okay. What about the artwork, at least? Was the artwork good, bad, no, yes? Generally indifferent. I mean, I think some of the panels and stuff that we talked about were cool. Like the you mentioned the guy with all of his equipment and some of the stuff, but I didn't find it to be overwhelmingly impressive or overwhelmingly bad. Okay. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm very indifferent this week to this one. <laughs> that's okay. Somebody that's not indifferent to this book is Chad Smith. Chad, what are you rating it this week? This one is hard for me uh, because I I agree with Nicole in that I think the book is slightly better, but then I think the graphic novel is better at other things, and I think it's a great supplement. But with that said, in fact, this is not my favorite Vonnegut. I, I'm going to go three and a half. Tralfamadorians. <laughs> That's just wonderful. I I like the way it sounds like something you should, I don't know, smoke a cigar in or something. The trial foul. That's right. I started saying the word and realized I didn't know what it was. And so I had to look around to find it. I don't know if you could tell. All right. J.A., what's your grade on this particular book? I'm going to give it a solid three Tralfamadorians. I think I like that pronunciation better than Tralfamadorian. Tralfamadorian. No, it's Tralfamadorians. That's it. Now, why why are you rating it? Now, why are you rating it a three? You better have a good I, reason. These the, both of these guys kind of bombed out. Oh. I thought uh, for a novel that is probably very hard to adapt, the adaptation did a good job of remaining true to the original while using the medium to 
accurately describe and elaborate on some of the parts of the novel that people find hard to approach. The fact that it's nonlinear yes. in, in its storytelling. I thought that the graphic novel was very good at the beginning of letting you know that this is going to jump around and don't be confused by it. No, I, I'm going to agree 100% on that. I think that's why I'm going to give this a four. This is a four trail famidori. Tra tram, tra 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 Anyways, it's trail. a four out of four. And uh, the reason why is because I really feel like Slaughterhouse-Five can be a little daunting. Even though if you, re if you read it linearly, if the book was just spelled out linearly, this, again, this is just a particular story about somebody who has PTSD after being in a horrific war. You know, and actually other things in his life, like, again, being thrown into a swimming pool, that's not good for any kid. And I don't recommend that any parent out there do that to their kid. That's yeah. not the way to teach somebody to swim. And, or being thrown into optometry. Yeah, or crashing into a side of a mountain. Guys lived a pretty hard life. So, you know, again, why his daughter comes in at the end and is just a busybody, I, ooh, that just, that just ruffled my feathers. But this particular comic book, it gives you an opportunity uh, to kind of visualize better uh, some of the concepts that uh, Kurt Vonnegut is talking about in the particular novel. I really feel like, unlike a movie adaptation sometimes, which can be way far off from the novel, you are really truly getting the novel in this comic book. So you can just kind of enjoy the ride. But at the end of the day, you get a better picture of this whole world. And I just think that the aliens in the in the in the book look super cool. Like the Trial Famidorians, the Trial Famid Tramphora Flora, whatever. What <laughs> we can pronounce is recommendations. And that's what we're gonna end this particular show with. As always, we like to give you other comic books that you can check out in your spare time uh, by going to your local comic book shop and picking them up while you're picking up uh, the comic book adaptation of Slaughterhouse Five. So any case, we always do on these particular shows, we always like to do a similar book, a current book, and one out of left field, as well as a cherry on the top when we have wonderful guests like my wife. Can, can I interrupt our, our proceedings? Yes. Recommend real books first before we do the comic books? Okay, because, go ahead. Because I love Kurt Vonnegut. Honestly, like so much of the way that I think about the world has been impressed uh, upon by Kurt Vonnegut and his writings. I, I would hate for people to just to stop at Slaughterhouse Five if you're reading that. Make sure you check out books like Mother Night, Breakfast of Champions, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, uh, and then later on in his life he would just publish books of essays that you know really distilled a lot of his philosophies in the way that he thought. Uh, but those are all uh, Vonnegut books that I would rank higher than this particular novel, uh, in just terms of really getting to know what he's trying to get across. Uh, I, okay, let's get back to the comics. <laughs> Wait, John Andrew picked up a book off his shelf and then held it. So now you have to tell me what thick book you have and how it smell. <laughs> yes. So if you uh, into Kurt Vonnegut, then you can read also uh, some added reading, I would say, would be some of the writers that inspired him. And one of them would be Dostoevsky, the brothers Karamazov, which I believe, I don't remember it being in the graphic novel version, but in the book, the brothers Karamazov contains, quote, everything there was to know about life. 
And how did your book smell? Musty. Musty. Yes. <laughs> well, hopefully these other comic book recommendations won't smell bad to any of us. And we're going to start off with my cousin, who's going to give us actually a comic book. Some, I think it's a similar one, I think. Uh, I mean, it's either similar or it's out of left field. Eh, who cares? Anyways, uh, what, what's your comic book recommendation this week, uh, Jay? So sticking, sticking in the realm of comic adaptations, I'm going with a 1976 Marvel production of 2001 A Space Odyssey written and drawn by Jack Kirby. If there ever was a book for Kirby. Yes, exactly. It marries everything that you love about Kirby's run in Fantastic Four with everything you loved about the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey all on these beautiful pages. You can find it in a Marvel Treasury edition, though uh, it's not easy to come by. I think I've seen it sold here and there um, on eBay and on Amazon. But if you find it, if you see it, if you can pick it up, I highly recommend it. Just a beautiful adaptation. All right. And uh, I'm going to kind of follow up with that with another blast to the past. This is, a, some, I guess, either out of left field and or similar book. And this is, again, an, another comic book adaptation of a very famous sci-fi work. And that is basically Princess of Mars. Uh, by Edgar Rice Burroughs, who is most famously known for Tarzan. But he was one of the biggest writers of the early 1900s in terms of science fiction, and really put, you know, adventure, swashbuckling aspects of sci-fi on the map. And uh, Marvel picked up on that in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, with their own uh, adaptation of his work called John Carter, Warlords of Mars. But uh, they uh, collected an omnibus format. And I've got to say, if you want a who's who of terrific comic book talents, don't look any further than this particular collection because the people that worked on this particular series, it's just incredible. Uh, from a writing standpoint, the first 10 issues were written by Marv Wolfman, which you might know from Teen Titans and all kinds of other stuff. But then it was followed up by Chris Claremont. Uh, again, we just talked about it last week with Chris Claremont's X-Men. So those are the two big writers on this series. And when it comes to pencilers, you got Gil Kane on the first 10 issues. Then it's Dave Cochran. Then it's Sal Bushima. Then it's Carmen Infantino. Then it's Walt Simonson. Then it's Ross Andrew, and later on it's Frank Miller. All of these folks worked on this comic book at one point or another. Big, big names. Geez, that's like all the best of the 70s into the 80s. I mean, how are people not reading this series with that amount of talent? Is it just because of that horrible Disney movie and nobody likes John Carter? Which, I didn't think that movie was that bad. It just hit at the wrong time. And so you can get it in omnibus format. You can get the entire collection. I think it runs... 28 issues and three annuals, all in that omnibus. Check it out. It is a really, really great blast of the past and kind of, again, just some fun, like kind of almost like Flash Gordon kind of running around, sword swinging, alien races, just fun stuff. Chad, what's our current book this week? Okay. And so I was thinking about all this, you know, unstuck in time and aliens. And so I thought I would give a nod to Chip Zdarsky's most recent run on Daredevil. Where it started off and I thought he was picking up the pieces from the Charles Soule run and putting Daredevil back together, but he was taking him through his greatest hits. And, you know, he had to fight Bullseye and he had to fight all of the stilt man and all those guys. And at one point, there's an issue where at the end of the issue, uh, you see Daredevil with a Punisher shirt on. And like, what are you doing, Zdarsky? And he does all kinds of weird stuff like that. At one point, you get uh, Venom Daredevil. (laughs) 
And it's one of those things just in the spirit of Donny Cates, who writes the King in Black uh, regular series. It's so dumb that it's just it just works. <laughs> it's so stupid, but it's like, ah, I couldn't wait for the rest of it. But uh, so this series, it's, it's really fun. It's all over the place. There's a really big twist that I'm trying not to spoil. But uh, the main artist is Marco Cicchetto, and there are a bunch of others. But uh, the Zadarsky run on Daredevil, I don't know what volume it's up to now, but uh, it, it's good stuff. It's worth checking out. Okay. And our cherry on top this week, it comes from my wonderful wife. Uh, and what book are you going to recommend? I'm always the cherry on top. Of you time. are. He has to say that. Contractually obligated. Yeah. So as we alluded to earlier in the show, I'm going to bring it back to uh, World War II and uh, recommend the graphic novel adaptation of Anne Frank's diary. Uh, I will say the caveat to this is that I never actually read the Anne Frank's diary novel. So this is my only experience of her diary. And by the Israeli um, filmmaker, Ari Fulman. Uh, he had an Oscar-nominated uh, documentary, Waltz with Bashir, back in 2008. Uh, so he adapted it. it was, this is the only adaptation approved by the Frank family. Uh, and then David Polanski, who's a Ukrainian-born Israeli book illustrator, uh, did the art. And having not experienced this before, it was eye-opening to me, the, the emotions that they really were able to transcend through the art. I thought it was really well done. And in the end, you realize that it's, it's just a diary of a young girl. You know, she really was just trapped in this house for like two years with nothing to do. And it's interesting, some of the mundanities that she goes through and, you know, just the day-to-day stupid stuff that all teenagers go through. Or, uh, and then obviously contrasted with the seriousness of the situation that they were in. So very, very well done. One day I'll get around to reading the book as well. Okay. Well, that's all the time we had for the last comic shop this week. I hope you enjoyed our particular broadcast. As always, you can find us at www.lastcomicshoppodcast.com. It's our fantastic little website where you can rate, review, and subscribe to any of the places that you can find our podcasts on a weekly basis, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Stitcher or Spotify or uh, Amazon Music or Pandora. Gosh, we're everywhere. So just find some place rate, review, and subscribe to us. But J.A., what else can they find on our website every single day? Lots and lots of merchandise. <laughs> Tell them what they want, Johnny! You want a brand new car! <laughs> we don't have cars, but we've got t-shirts. T-shirts, hoodies, leg warmers. I don't know if we have leg warmers. Well, I don't think we have leg warmers. Face masks, we got... Uh, Laptop covers, wall art, all kinds of great stuff. So check out our website at www.lastcomicshoppodcast.com. And we may be the last comic shop podcast. We are not the last comic shop, most likely, in your time. So if you want to come unstuck and go to the comicshoplocator.com, you can find a comic shop near you and support those fine establishments while there is still time to do so. All right. And until next week, I was the host of the most, Andy Larson. I was joined by J.A. Scott and Chad Smith as well as Nicole for this particular show. And hopefully we'll have her back soon. Until then, stay safe, stay sheltered, and above all, remember to stay unstuck. Because sometimes it's better than the alternatives. Po-tweet? Po-tweet?
the last comic shop was a 2021 Black Angus production.